Hello, my friends, and welcome back to Scary Stories from a Graveyard. I have missed you, my friends. Tonight, I come to you from Rowe Cemetery in Crawford County, Kansas. It's a smaller cemetery. In fact, there's only 27 residents known for sure interred here, most of which are children. But it has been around since 1887. And it's actually well taken care of. I'm happy to see that. So, if you are quite prepared, I will now begin with our stories for the day, for the night. Once again, more stories from Present at a Hanging and other ghost stories by Ambrose Bierce. And tonight's first tale is titled Two Military Executions. In the spring of the year 1862, General Buell's big army lay in camp, licking itself into shape for the campaign which resulted in the victory at Shiloh. It was a raw, untrained army, although some of its fractions had seen hard enough service with a good deal of fighting. in the mountains of West Virginia and in Kentucky. <clears throat> Excuse me. The war was young and soldiering a new industry, imperfectly understood by the young American of the period, who found some features of it not altogether to his liking. Chief among these was that essential part of discipline, subordination. To one imbued from infancy, with the fascinating fallacy that all men are born equal, unquestioning submission to authority is not easily mastered, and the American soldier, volunteer soldier, in his green and salad days, is among the worst known. That is how it happened that one of Buell's men, Private Bennett Story Green, committed the indiscretion of striking his officer. Later in the war, he would not have done that. Like Sir Andrew Aguchik, he would have seen his damned first. But time for reformation of his military manners was denied him. He was promptly arrested on complaint of the officer, tried by court-martial and sentenced to be shot. You might have thrashed me and let it go at that said the condemned man to the complaining witness. That is what you used to do at school when you were playing Will Dudley and, was, and I was as good as you. Nobody saw me strike you. Discipline would not have suffered much. Ben Green, I guess you are right about that, said the lieutenant. Will you forgive me? That is what I came to see you about. There was no reply, and an officer putting his head in at the door of the card tent, 
where the conversation had occurred, explained that the time allowed for the interview had expired. The next morning, when in the presence of the whole brigade, Private Green was shot to death by a squad of his comrades. Lieutenant Dudley turned his back upon the sorry performance and muttered a prayer for mercy, in which himself was included. A few weeks afterward, as Buell's leading division was being ferried over the Tennessee River to, insist, to assist in securing Grant's beaten army, night was coming on, black and stormy. Through the wreck of battle, the division moved inch by inch in the direction of the enemy, who had withdrawn a little to reform his lines. But for the lightning, the darkness was absolute. Never for a moment did it cease, and ever when the thunder did not crack and roar were heard the moans of the wounded among whom the men felt their way with their feet, and upon whom they stumbled in the gloom. The dead were there, two there, and were dead aplenty. In the first gray, or in the first faint gray of the morning, when the swarming advance had paused to resume something of a definition as a line of battle, and skirmishers had been thrown forward, word was passed along to call the roll. The first sergeant of Lieutenant Dudley's company stepped to the front and began to name the men in alphabetical order. He had no written roll, but a good memory. The men answered to their names as he ran down the alphabet to G. Gorham, here, Grey Rock, here. The sergeant's good memory was affected by habit. Green, here. The response was clear, distinct, unmistakable. A sudden movement, an agitation of the entire company front, as from an electric shock, attested the startled char startling character of the incident. The sergeant paled and paused. The captain strode quickly to his side and said sharply, Call that name again. Apparently the Society for Psychical Research is not first in the field of curiosity concerning the unknown. Bennett Green, here! All faces turned in the direction of the familiar voice. The two men between whom, in the order of stature, Green had commonly stood in line, turned and squarely confronted each other. Once more, commented the inexorable investigator, and once more came, a trifle tremulously, the name of the dead man, Bennett Story Green. Here! At that instant, a single rifle shot was heard away to the front, beyond the skirmish line, followed, almost attended, by the savage hiss of an approaching bullet, which, passing through the line, struck audibly, puncturing, punctuating, as with a full stop, the captain's exclamation, What the devil does it mean? Lieutenant Dudley pushed through the ranks from his place in the rear. It means this, he said, throwing open his coat and displaying a visibly broadening stain of crisman, crisman, crimson on his breast. His knees gave way. He fell awkwardly and lay dead. A little later, the regiment was ordered out of line to relieve the congested front, 
and through some dis misplay in the game of battle, was not again under fire. Nor did Bennett Green, expert in military ex executions, ever again signify his presence at one. All right. The next tale begins a section concerning haunted houses. And this second tale is titled, The Isle of Pines. <clears throat> Excuse me. For many years there lived near the town of Galapagos, Ohio, an old man named Herman Deleuze. Very little was known of his history, for he would neither speak of it himself, nor suffer others. It was a common belief among his neighbors that he had been a pirate, if upon a better, any better evidence than his collection of boarding pikes, cutlasses, and ancient flintlock pistols, no one knew. He lived entirely alone in a small house of four rooms, falling rapidly into decay, and never repaired further than was required by the weather. It stood on a slight elevation in the midst of a large stony field overgrown with brambles and cultivated in patches and only in the most primitive way. It was his only visible property, but could hardly have yielded him a living, simple and few as were his wants. He seemed always to have ready money, and paid cash for all his purchases at the village stores roundabout, seldom buying more than two or three items, or three, two or three times, at the same place until after the lapse of a considerable time. He got no com commendation, however, for his equitable distribution of his patronage. People were disposed to regard it as an ineffectual attempt to conceal his possession of so much money. That he had hordes of ill-gotten gold buried somewhere about his tumble-down dwelling was not reasonably to be doubted by any honest soul conversant with the facts of local tradition and gifted with a sense of the fitness of things. On the 9th of November, 1867, the old man died. At least his dead body was discovered on the 10th, and physicians testified that death had occurred about 24 hours previously. Precisely how, they were unable to say. For the post-mortem examination showed every organ to be absolutely healthy, with no indication of disorder or violence. According to them, death must have taken place about noonday, yet the body was found in bed. The verdict of the coroner's jury was that he came to his death by a visitation of God. The body was buried, and the public administrator took charge of the estate. A rigorous search disclosed nothing more than was already known about the dead man, and much patient ex ex excavation here and there about the premises by thoughtful and thrifty neighbors went unrewarded. 
The administrator locked up the house against the time when the property, real or personal, should be sold by law with a view to defraying partly the expenses of the sale. The night of November 20 was boisterous. A furious gale stormed across the country, scourging it with desolating drifts of sleet. Great trees were torn from the earth and hurled across the roads. So wild a night had never been known in all that region. But toward morning the storm had blown itself out of breath, and day dawned bright and clear. At about eight o'clock that morning the Reverend Henry Galbraith, a well-known and highly esteemed Lutheran minister, arrived on foot at his house a mile and a half from the Deleuze place. Mr. Galbraith had been for a month in Cincinnati. He had come up the river in a steamboat and landing at Galapagos the previous evening had immediately obtained a horse and buggy and set out for home. The violence of the storm had delayed him overnight, and in the morning the fallen trees had compelled him to abandon his conveyance and continue his journey afoot. "'But where did you pass the night?' inquired his wife, after he had briefly related his adventure. "'With old Deleuze at the Isle of Pines,' was his the laughing reply, "'and a glum enough time I had of it. He made no objection to my remaining, but not a word could I get out of him. Fortunately for the interests of truth, there were present was present at this conversation Mr. Robert Morsley Warren, a lawyer and literature of Columbus, and this oh, the same who wrote the delightful Mellowcroft papers, noting, but apparently not sharing, the astonishment caused by Mr. Galbraith's answer, this ready-witted person checked by a gesture the exclamations that would naturally have followed, and tranquilly inquired, How came you to go in there? This is Mr. Warren's version of Mr. Galbraith's reply. I saw a light moving about the house, and nearly, being nearly blinded by the sleet, and half frozen besides, drove in at the gate and put my put up my horse in the old rail stable, where it is now. I then rapped at the door, and getting no invitation, went in without one. The room was dark, but having matches, I have found a candle and lit it. I tried to enter the adjoining room, but the door was fast, and although I heard the old man's heavy footsteps in there, he made no response to my calls. There was no fire on the hearth, so I made one, and lying, and laying down before it with my overcoat over my head, prepared myself for sleep. Pretty soon, the door that I had tried silently opened and the old man came in, carrying a candle. I spoke to him pleasantly, apologizing for my intrusion, but he took no notice of me. He seemed to be searching for something, though his eyes were unmoved in their sockets. I wonder if he ever walks in his sleep. He took a circuit a part of the way around the room, and went out the same way he had come in 
twice more before I slept he came back into the room, acting precisely the same way, and departing as at first. In the intervals, I heard him tramping all over the house, his footsteps distinctly audible in the pauses of the storm. When I woke in the morning, he had already gone out. Mr. Marin attempted some further questioning, but was unable longer to restrain the family's tongues. The story of Deleuze's death and burial came out, greatly to the good minister's astonishment. The explanation of your adventure is very simple, said Mr. Warren, or Mr. Marin. I don't believe old Deleuze walks in his sleep, not in his present one, but you evidently dream in yours. And to this view of the matter, Mr. Galbraith was compelled reluctantly to assent. Nevertheless, a late hour of the next night found these two gentlemen, accompanied by a son of the minister, in the road in front of the old Deleuze house. There was a light inside. It appeared now at one window and now at another. The three men advanced to the door. Just as they reached it, there came from the interior a confusion of the most appalling sounds. The clash of weapons, steel against steel, sharp explosions as of firearms, shrieks of women, groans, and the curses of men in combat. The investigators stood a moment, irresolute, frightened. Then Mr. Galbraith tried the door. It was fast. But the minister was a man of courage, a man, moreover, of Herculean strength. He retired a pace or two and rushed against the door, striking it with his right shoulder and bursting it from the frame with a loud crash. In a moment, the three were inside darkness and silence. The only sound was the beating of their hearts. Mr. Marin had provided himself with matches and a candle. With some difficulty, begotten of his excitement, he made a light, and they proceeded to explore the place, passing from room to room. Everything was in orderly arrangement, as it had been left by the sheriff. Nothing had been disturbed. A light coating of dust was everywhere. A back door was partly open, as if by neglect, and their first thought was that the authors of the awful revelry might have escaped. The door was opened, and the light of the candle shone through upon the ground. The expiring effort of the previous night's storm had been all a light fall of snow. There were no footprints. The white surface was unbroken. They closed the door and entered the last room of the four that the house contained, that farthest from the road, in an angle of the building. Here the candle in Mr. Marin's hand was suddenly extinguished as if by a draught of air. Almost immediately followed the sound of a heavy fall. When the candle had been hastily relighted, young Mr. Galbraith was seen prostrate on the floor at a little distance from the others. He was dead. In one hand the body grasped a heavy sack of coins which later examination showed to be all of old Spanish mintage. Directly over the body, as it lay, a board had been torn from its fastenings in the wall, and from the cavity so disclosed it was evident 
that the bag had been taken. Another inquest was held. Another post-mortem examination failed to reveal a probable, probable cause of death. Another verdict of the visitation of God left all at liberty to form their own conclusions. Mr. Marin contended that the young man died of excitement. Let's see if we have time for one more tale, my friends. I believe that we do. And the title of this last story for the night is A Fruitless Assignment. Henry Saylor, who was killed in Covington in a quarrel with Antonio Finch, was a reporter on the Cincinnati commercial. In the year 1859, a vacant dwelling in Vine Street in Cincinnati became the center of a local excitement because of the strange sights and sounds said to be observed in it nightly. According to the testimony of many reputable residents of the vicinity, these were inconsistent with any other hypothesis that the house was haunted than that the house was haunted. Figures with something singularly unfamiliar about them were seen by crowds on the sidewalk to pass in and out. No one could say just where they appeared upon the open lawn on their way to the front door by which they had entered, nor at exactly what point they vanished as they came out. Or rather, while each spectator was positive enough about these matters, no two agreed. They were all similarly at variance in their descriptions of the figures themselves. Some of the bolder of the curious throng ventured on several evenings to stand upon the doorsteps to intercept them, or falling in this, or failing in this, get a nearer look at them. These courageous men, it was said, were unable to force the door by the united, their united strength, and always were hurled from the steps by some invisible agency and severely injured. The door immediately afterward opening, apparently of its own volition, to admit or free some ghostly guest. The dwelling was known as the Roscoe House, a family of that name having lived there for some years, and then one by one disappeared, the last to leave being an old woman. Stories of foul play and successive murders had always been rife, but never were authenticated. One day during the prevalence prevalence of the excitement, Sailor presented himself at the office of the commercial for orders. He received a note from the city editor, which read as follows. Go and pass the night alone in the haunted house in Vine Street, and if anything occurs worthwhile, make two columns. Sailor ob obeyed his, super his superior. He could not afford to lose his position on the paper. Apprising the police of his intention, he effected an entrance through a rear window before dark, 
walked through the deserted rooms, bare furniture, dusty and desolate, and seating himself at, the, at last in the parlor on an old sofa which he had dragged in from another room, watched the deepening of the gloom as night came on. Before it was altogether dark, the curious crowd had collected in the street, silent as a rule, and expectant, with here and there a scoffer uttering his incredulity and courage with scornful remarks or ribald cries. None knew of the anxious watcher inside. He feared to make a light. The uncurtained windows would have betrayed his presence, subjecting him to insult, possibly to injury. Moreover, he was too conscientious to do anything to enfeeble his impressions and unwilling to alter any of the customary conditions under which the manifestations were said to occur. It was now dark outside, but light from the street faintly illuminated the part of the room that he was in. He had set upon open every door in the whole interior, above and below, but all the outer ones were locked and bolted. Sudden exclamations from the crowd caused him to spring to the window and look out. He saw the figure of a man moving rapidly across the lawn toward the building, saw it ascend the steps, then a projection of the wall concealed it. There was a noise as if the as of the opening and closing of the hall door. He heard quick, heavy footsteps along the passage, heard them ascend the stairs, heard them on the uncarpeted floor of the chamber immediately overhead. Sailor promptly drew his pistol, and groping his way up the stairs entered the chamber, dimly lighted from the street. No one was there. He, had, he heard footsteps in an adjoining room and entered that. It was dark and silent. He struck his foot against some object on the floor, knelt by it, passed his hand over it. It was a human head, that of a woman. Lifting it by the hair, this iron-nerved man returned to the half-lighted room below, carried it near the window, and attentively examined it. While so engaged, he was half-conscious of the rapid opening and closing of the outer door a footfall sounding all about him. He raised his eyes from the ghastly object of his attention and saw himself the center of a crowd and saw himself the center of a crowd of men and women dimly seen. The room was thronged with them. He thought the people had broken in. Ladies and gentlemen, he said coolly, you see me under suspicious circumstances, but... His voice was drowned in peals of laughter, such laughter as is heard in asylums for the insane. The persons about him pointed at the object in his hand, and their merriment increased as he dropped it, and it went rolling among their feet. They danced about it with gestures grotesque and attitudes obscene and indescribable. They struck it with their feet, urging it about the room from wall to wall pushed and overthrew one another in their struggles to kick it, cursed and screamed and sang snatches of ribald songs as the battered head bounded about the room as if in terror and trying to escape. At last it shot out of the door into the hall, followed by all with tumultuous haste. That moment 
the door closed with a sharp concussion. Sailor was alone, in dead silence. Carefully putting away his pistol, which all the time he had held in his hand, he went to a window and looked out. The street was deserted and silent. The lamps were, uh, were extinguished. The roofs and chimneys of the houses were sharply outlined against the dawn light in the east. He left the house, the door yielding easily to his hand, and walked on, walked to commercial office. the commercial office. The city editor was still in his office, asleep. Sailor waked him and said, I have been at the haunted house. The editor stared bank blankly, blankly, as if not wholly awake. Good God, he cried, are you sailor? Yes, why not? The editor made no answer, but continued staring. I passed the night there, it seems, said sailor. They say that things were uncommonly quiet out there, the editor said, trifling with a paperweight upon which he had dropped his eyes. Did anything occur? occur? Nothing whatsoever. <laughs> well, interesting that he chose not to reveal the strange going on, goings on there. Well, another group of three good stories, and I certainly hope you enjoyed them as much as I. So, my friends, thank you for joining me once again for some tales, some scary stories from a graveyard. I hope that you have a pleasant evening and a good tomorrow. I hope to see you all very soon once again. Goodbye, my friends.